Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, one announcement I did forget to say, because I always forget one, is uh, our deacons meeting this Wednesday at uh, 7 o'clock here at the church. If you're a ministry leader uh, and you're able to make it, please plan to do so. Our first one of the year, um, and it should be good. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're in 1 Thessalonians 4 today. Uh, many who are texting me uh, during worship saying, I'm watching online, I'm with you in per, uh, spirit, so welcome online, everyone. Uh, we know the snow and the roads are bad, and it keeps people at home, so uh, we're glad that we have this opportunity for today. But we're going to be finishing this very mini-series, if you want to call it that, that I started last week called Living Our Lives uh, in Light of Tomorrow, Living Today in Light of Tomorrow. And uh, it's just to help us kind of get our new year, kick our new year off on the right foot, but not really just our new year, but the rest of our lives should be governed by these principles that we talked about last week and the principles that we will talk today. So last week we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, a few verses just before this, and, uh, and today we are going to be considering what it means to truly live in light of tomorrow, in light of what God is going to do. Not just what God did back then, right? We're good at that. We're good at looking backwards and looking at what God has done or what God is doing presently in our lives. Those are all important practices that we should keep part of our prayer in our lives. But we should also be looking forward to what God is going to do, what God will accomplish. And what today is really going to deal with is a big theological word. You might know it, but it's called eschatology. Or maybe you've heard it as the end times. Right? Dum, dum, dum. The end times. The end of ages. <laughs> in eschatology, it's the doctrine that deals with the end. And, and I know that can conjure up a lot of fear in, in images and pictures and thoughts. But today we're just going to look at the truth that Jesus is coming back. Amen? So with that, let's go to the Word of God. Let's hear the one thing that isn't going to be wrong today. I might say something dumb, but the Word of God is always true. It's alive and active. And it is your source of your life that the Holy Spirit applies to your life. So 1 Thessalonians 4.13 all the way to 18 says, um, oh, I lost my spot there. Yeah, there we go. Um, in 5, that's why. That doesn't make sense. Here we are. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. That's so important. So we're talking about the end times, eschatology, and most people they don't have time for this. We don't want to discuss this. We avoid it at all, uh, all costs because eschatology often conjures up pictures of really big and not accurate charts, right, of trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back, guessing the date of his return. Or if you were alive in the 80s, in 1988, when the book came out, 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. 
It didn't happen, so they put out a new book in 89. 89 reasons why the rapture will... I don't know if they're still on the 2024 edition yet, but if any year it could happen, today it might be. I don't know. But, uh, uh, but it, we can't, we, there, we, you might have pictures of people trying to predict, you know, buy and sell your land over here because Jesus is coming back. Uh, some of you might remember about a year ago, my, my, my dear friend and mentor, uh, Peter, uh, who pastors our sister church in uh, Red Deer, Bethany Baptist Church, I bring him up because his church has a very unique relationship with eschatology, not because of Peter, but because of their history. Now, uh, many of you who were born in Alberta or raised in Alberta or your older Albertans probably recognize the name William Aberhart. Does anyone recognize that name? Yeah, William Aberhart. He was one of our premiers from 1935 to 1943 when he died actually in office. He's responsible for the social credit union and things like that. Uh, But also, he wasn't just a politician. He was a very influential Bible preacher in his day. And he also goes by the name of Bible Bill, right? So he actually planted Bethany Baptist Church in Red Deer, and he pastored there along with another gentleman named Ernest Manning. And and just a little bit of a segue here. Uh, 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 William Aberhart used to be the teacher, not the pastor, but a teacher associated with Westbourne Baptist Church. Westbourne started going, hey, this guy's a little weird in some of his teaching. And so they distanced themselves from him. He went and planted Bethany. And then Westbourne hired a guy named Morley Hall. Morley Hall meets a guy named C.H. Phillips. They start the regular Baptist movement of Alberta, and they birth the church of Drumheller. So without all that happening, and now I'm being very quick in details, there's more details there, but uh, without that happening, without them moving away, we, we probably wouldn't exist as Drumheller Baptist Church. So here we are. That's a little free nugget for you. But anyways, back to Aberhart. He was very much, him and Ernest Manning were very much into the end times. So the last time I was in Red Deer, Peter pulls out this scroll from the archives, this massive scroll, and rolls it out on this huge table. And it's all these hand-painted details of charts going through the end times, trying to predict, in a sense, when Jesus would come back. It's amazing. It's beautiful, the detail that these men put into these huge charts. It's a piece of church history. And it was an honor for me to see. But that's what we tend to see. That's what we picture when someone stands up in a pulpit or in a, in a home group and they bring up the, the, the topic of Christ's return. We get a little scared. Oh, no, we're going to get a lot of charts and maps out here for the next couple hours. But, uh, but that's not how we are supposed to view eschatology. That's not how we're supposed to view the end times. As Paul said in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's actually meant to encourage us, not to divide us, not to scare us, but to encourage us. Eschatology, though, unfortunately, because of the weirdness and the fighting that's often associated with it, believers tend to think it's irrelevant. You know, oh, it's all just going to pan out in the end. I don't have to worry about this. Or they, might, they tend to think of it as peripheral. Yeah, it's there, but I'm not really going to focus much on it. And, and a lot of times we tend to treat eschatology as kind of that annoying friend who's really into something, right? Have you ever met somebody who has been into CrossFit? Like they're the most annoying people on this planet. They don't stop talking about CrossFit. It's like, get a life, and I just want to eat my donut in peace, you know? Leave me alone, you know? And, and they're all about CrossFit. And, 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 and we all know, we all have friends and people in our lives who are really into something. It becomes their entire life. And then since that point on, it's really hard for you to have any type of conversation with them because all they want to talk about 
is that thing. And that thing has no bearing on your life at all. And so many of us look to eschatology or the end like that. Yeah, it's there, but it really has no bearing on my life. I don't know where the intersection is. Where is the relevance to my daily life? And we conceive of this conversation as if we're talking about something that's miniature, something that's just a little insignificant detail in the pages of Scripture, but it's not. It's huge. It's massive. Eschatology matters, church. The end times matters. And here's what we're going to see in these verses if we can boil it down to just one thing. And that would be, I don't have the big idea. So here we go. That would be, <laughs> without the doctrine of Christ's return, your faith will be weak and incomplete. Let me say that again since it's not on the screen. Without the doctrine or the teaching of Christ's return, your faith will be weak or incomplete. And now we're going to flesh what, out, what that means. So without the aspect of eschatology, without the end, your faith is going to be weak. You won't be able, this is what eschatology does for us, to persevere in your faith through the dark days of your life without this truth. When, when you're going through the ringer, when you're in the dark night of the soul, when life is spiraling out of control, the doctrine of the end stands there like a pillar. This might never be reconciled in my life, but I know a day is coming when the perfect one, the clean one, the righteous one will come and correct, correct all evil, correct all injustice, amen? And your theology will be incomplete. Theology, again, the study of God and an incomplete understanding of God and his word will always produce negative results in your life. This is why Dean and I were pushing for so many weeks there, read the Bible together with us throughout this year. Not because it's a religious duty, but because this contains the words of life. This is what you stand upon, the truths of Christ that teach you about Jesus. Be familiar with it. So as we're looking at these verses, though, we need to know a little bit of the context of what is going on and what the concern is that this church has for us to understand. We can't fully understand, but what we know is that Paul is just jumping in in verse 13 saying, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So what we're seeing here in that first verse is that this church in Thessalonica was a church, uh, just for some context, was planted by Paul. He knows, he loves these people. And this church, though, was a young church at this time. And I'm not talking about in terms of age, but I'm talking about it's a new church. It's a new body of believers, which means this church is a little bit delicate. Wheels can come off a church plant very quickly in their first couple years. So Paul planted this church. He is invested in this church. And he hears now that some of the believers, some of the original crew, have died. Maybe they've died because of persecution, because there is some persecution going on at this time now. They could have died from just old age or sickness or accident, but that's beside the point. The point here is Paul has heard that Christians of whom he loved and they have loved have died in this church. And the concern of this body seems to be that those who have died will somehow miss out on the return of Jesus Christ. So you got to understand, these Christians actually had a very good understanding and focus that Jesus is coming back. They had a really good eschatology. It was big enough to realize that, hey, it sucks right now, it hurts right now, but something better is coming. Jesus is coming. And that was their hope. 
And, and it was so much their hope that they started not connecting all the dots all the time. They're waiting for Jesus to come back, and then people start dying, and they go, oh, wait a minute. Is my brother now not going to experience this thing that we've been holding on to for so long? This amazing hope that Jesus is going to come back? Are they, are they going to miss out on his return? It actually they, it says they were overcome with grief. Right? They're not just grieved or hurting because they've lost people. They're, they're, they're overcome as if they have no hope. And that's where the issue is. And that no hope is rooted in the fact that they have a little bit of confusion over Christ's return. They know he's coming. They have a focus on it. They just have a little bit of confusion. Their doctrine, if you want to call it, their theology is a little bit wonky. They are not connecting all the dots, and they're not able to see the full picture to give them full hope. So I know, I, I don't know if they've lost complete confidence or if they just have some bad ideas, probably a mixture of both, but I know the lie that fills our minds often and our heads often in 2024. And that is we wonder, is Jesus actually ever going to come back? And some of us doubt that. Is he actually going to come back? It's been 2,000 years, man. You said be right back. And you haven't come back 2,000 plus years. Where are you? Like, are you ever going to come? If you, if you were going to come, wouldn't you have already have come, especially after two world wars and all these other crazy things that our world has seen? Why aren't you here? Or maybe you don't go to that extreme, but you say things like, well, no, I believe he's going to come back, but just not in my lifetime. Uh, but he'll come back just, just way later. And you're just kind of saying that to give yourself an out. You don't want to say you don't believe it, but you have some doubts. But let me say it this way. The return of Christ is one of the most essential teachings that a Christian must hold on to. A Christian must believe. I'm not saying all those little secondary details about how it might play out. Sure, have fun discussing those things. Don't divide over those things. Have fun discussing those things. But the fact that we all agree that Christ is coming. And we must hold on to that. Have we lost, as a modern church, have we lost confidence in this truth? as the Christians seemingly have in Thessalonica. Have we? Or maybe we're confused over it. But what we see Paul doing here in chapter 4 is he is correcting the concerns, these bad ideas in the midst of what is going on. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to just be ignorant about this. I want you to know this. I, don't want, I, I, I want you to know the truth about those who have died in Christ. I want you to know the truth about the return of Jesus. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be incorrect about your understanding. And now, again, think about who he's talking to. He's talking about people who are going through a nightmare. They have lost loved ones. People are dead. There's persecution. And, and, and it's come upon the church. They're crying. They're losing their hope. And Paul pulls up a chair and says, let's talk about the end times. Like, read the room, Paul. <laughs> It'd be like if I went and visited a dying person in the hospital and say, hey, you want to see a chart? You know, about the end. No, I'm kidding. it's not that extreme. But, but here's the truth that Paul's getting at. Better theology is not going to take away your grief, but good theology does restore your hope. A good understanding of what God is doing restores your hope. Your grief will remain, often remains, but in the midst of such dark days that come, you want to have a faith that is rooted and grounded in the truths of Scripture that God has given to us. He has given us this word. Let's not neglect it. And by the way, this also implies just a kind of a side comment that it's okay to grieve. Yeah. Paul's not saying, hey, don't grieve. 
He's acknowledging their grief. It's okay to grieve. I don't know why this happens in the church, but Christians often act like or pretend that we can't grieve as Christians when people die. They're with heaven. What are you sad about? I'm not sad that they're in heaven. Look, I'm happy that people die. I'm happy. No, no, sorry. Let me. That could be a sound bite that goes the wrong way. I'm happy that people die and go to heaven. Let me finish that sentence. <laughs> and, and that they're with the Lord. But when I'm grieving, I'm not grieving for the state of their soul. I'm grieving for the loss of my relationship with them. We who are left behind from the loved ones when they go to the Lord, we're now living in this tension where our relationship with that individual has been severed for at least now. And that's a hard reality. That's painful. We have to work through that. It's okay to grieve. Christian, I want you to hear this. It's biblical to grieve. Read the Psalms. It's biblical to grieve. It's healthy to grieve. You must grieve. But you don't lose hope. You don't lose hope. That's our theology, that we don't lose hope. And if we do, then our theology has a disconnect. So what does he say? I don't want you to be ignorant. I, I want to help you with your ignorance. And Paul goes back to what we should always go back to when we're struggling with doubt or when we're struggling in our hope, when we're struggling to keep our eyes on Christ, as the author of Hebrews would say. He goes back to the gospel, to the truth, to the fundamentals that we should never move past. He says in verse 14, He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you believe that? We all believe that. All denominations, all true Christians agree on this. And Paul goes to the gospel, a reminder of hope. Jesus died and he rose again. Believe that. Believe the truth of that because of Jesus' resurrection, that gives hope to us for those who have died. This Jesus who lived, he died, he rose again, and when he returns, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We look forward to Christ's return, and this is how he explains Christ's return in 15 to 17. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. If you don't like roller coasters, hold on. See the picture here? Paul says Christ is going to come. And when he does, he is going to descend from the heavens. He will descend to the earth. And as he is descending to the earth, there's going to be a great announcement, a great noise, a voice of an archangel, a trumpet of God. Now, I don't know what an archangel sounds like, and I don't think we need to sit here and try to figure that out. But the point is, what it's pointing to is there's going to be a royal, a grand announcement that takes the world captive. The the Lord will descend, and as he's descending, we who are alive are not the first to meet him. Instead, there is a resurrection of the bodies that have died that will meet the souls that are coming with him. They will be transformed into their glorified bodies. They will then, in their glorified state, meet Christ, and then we will meet him after. Now, I don't think it's going to be like, Come on, it's been 15 minutes. Have they not met yet? I think it's going to be very, very quick. I don't know. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that day. Well, my pastor said it was going to be in a blink of an eye. 
I think it is, but I could be wrong, and I'll, I'll admit that. But we will then be raised. Our bodies will then be changed in an instant to the glorified state, and we will join them. And, and it will all be happening, as I said, in a blink of an eye. But the point Paul is making is that when Christ returns, the dead are going to rise first, and they will meet with him. And now, we can say a lot about this moment, and this is where a lot of the disagreement starts to happen, <laughs> and, and when we meet him in the air, but for now, let's just be clear. Your faith, if it is not connected to this moment, to the return of Christ, will be weak and incomplete. Why? Well, look at what verse 18 says. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We were to encourage each other. When Paul sees the church hurting, when he sees the church suffering, he says, okay, guys, you need to take care of each other. You need to love each other. You need to serve each other. You need to encourage each other. And I want you to do this in, in means of the end times, of this truth. I want you to understand the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, what the plan is for God, God has for your salvation. That's where he goes. Now, if you keep reading, it goes to other parts too, but that's a huge puzzle piece of our hope, of our salvation. Think about this. Like, we are, to encourage, we are to be encouraged by this truth of Christ. And what encourage means, it means to be comforted, strengthened, or cheered up, or to be given hope. We all have those moments where we just feel like we can't go on. We need people to come around us and inject this hope into us to keep us going, to keep us moving, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and his return. Church, without this doctrine of Christ's return, your faith will be weak. My faith will be weak and incomplete. We'll be missing a major puzzle piece of our faith. And the reason why this is needed for everybody is because we live in a very dark world. It's not always sunshine and roses out there. You know that. We know darkness. We live in a dark world. And the reason why the world is so dark is because sin lays over it like a blanket. I love what the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards said. He says, The world is a dark place without Christ, and therefore it is dark until he comes, until he establishes his kingdom of glory. We live in a dark world. The darkness of sin plagues us. The darkness of sin overwhelms us. The darkness of evil pressures us from all sides. You know the world is dark. Even here in comfortable Western Canada, as one Albertan called it to me, the promised land, we tend to pretend here in this proverbial Bible belt that the lights are up, everything's good, and we're just ignoring the darkness around us. It's easy when we just kind of ignore it when we don't face it head on. And the darkness, when we face it head on, will frustrate you. It will hurt you. It will plague you. Everything we do, every relationship, every good thing has been marred, if not ruined, by sin. Either by your sin or my sin or someone else's sin. And this darkness will be suffocating. This sin will be suffocating. Paul even gets frustrated at his own sin in Romans 7. He starts going on a rant about, I don't want to do these things, and I want to do these things, but I keep doing these things. And I, I believe God put that in there for those moments when you just feel like, I am the worst Christian. So was Paul. That's the point. Jesus is the perfect one. Not you or me or not Paul. Jesus is. Sin, can can, sorry, sin contaminates every good thing. You see, when Christ returns, the darkness of sin that plagues us, that plagues your relationships, that plagues your life is removed because when Christ returns, he transforms us. He makes us like himself, and he removes all sin and evil. He eradicates it. Look at what 1 John says. Beloved, we are God's children now, 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John says right there, you are children of God. You have been reconciled to God. You have a relationship with God, and that's eternal. It's beautiful, and it defines you. It's amazing, but you are still not yet what you're supposed to be. Thank God, amen? Still not yet what we're supposed to be. That's coming. This will happen when Christ returns, and when he does, he will make us into the man or woman that we were designed to be. All sin removed, all corruption removed. You will be made entirely whole, entirely whole. And having that theology in place, that truth, John says it purifies us. It reorientates our life to live a life in light of the future. This is what it does. If you know the darkness of sin, then you will long for the return of Christ. Look at Philippians 3, 20 to 21. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When Jesus returns, you will be transformed and finally set free from that presence of sin, that Romans 7 sin that you've been like, man, I just don't want to do it, but it keeps coming back. This is what we hope for. And the person who hates their sin or their, or, or, or their sin, they long for Christ's return. And that darkness of death, it can overwhelm us. It can, it, 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 because we see it, we experience it, we cannot be helped but be burdened by it and, and grieved by it. But not just death, but the things that precede death that are so painful. The frailty of human nature. The fact that our brains and our bodies don't act like they should and some people really suffer because of that. R.C. Sproul always said famously, he says, I'm not afraid to die, but I'm not looking forward to the process. But what does Christ do when he returns? He resurrects. We get new bodies like his. We are changed in an instant. We are transformed into people who we are supposed to be, body and soul. So if you feel the darkness of death and disease in your life, then you will long for Christ's return. Like, I'll just give you an example from my own life. The return of Christ scared the wits out of me all my life. You know, when you're raised in the 80s and 90s and you've been raised on Left Behind movies and you walk into your living room and your mom or your dad has put out folded laundry on all the couches and you haven't seen them yet, <laughs> it's over. I've been, I've been man, I don't get the mark. I'm scared, you know. It was all fear-driven for me. But when the, as soon as the moment my father died, that moment when I watched him take his last, last breath, something switched to me. And I started to feel this longing, this, this burning in my soul for Christ to return because something's not right anymore. I experienced something that shouldn't happen, which is death. Death shouldn't happen. Death is a cause of the fall. And in an instant, I found myself longing, Lord, let it be tomorrow. I don't care if I get married or not. Let it be tomorrow. Come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. If we feel the darkness of death and disease, we will long for Christ's return. Seeing the people we love suffer with illnesses and die breaks our hearts. It shatters us, and rightly so. And we on our own, we are not sure how to even cope with that. We want to get angry, we want to do dumb things, but as Christians, it makes us long for Christ's return when this will all be corrected. I might feel angry, 
I, I, even in the light of that, I might still feel the desire to do something stupid, but, but all these desires, all these feelings begin to get eclipsed in the light of the promises of Christ. I might still walk with a limp for the rest of my life, but I know God is good. The dark world that we live in is filled with darkness of evil, and it's easy for it to overwhelm us. It's easy for us to, uh, to, to get bogged down from this when we see conflicts like happening in Israel and the Middle East and, and other places of conflict in Ukraine and Russia, or if you remember back to 9-11 or any of the wars, it begins to overwhelm us. What's going on, Lord? But you don't even have to go to those extreme big events. We, we all witness evil deeds committed in our own towns, in our own neighborhoods, and on smaller scales, especially if you're on drum discussion. No matter, no one gets away with anything in this town, right? It's just blasted all over social media. But, but when Christ returns, he's returning to judge and to rescue. Listen to what Paul says in, in, uh, in chapter 5. Again, it's not there. It raptured. Just listen. Oh, I didn't put it there intentionally. I want you to listen. There's importance to listening to God's word. I remember now. I have it written here. Now, concerning the times and season, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is, a, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. See, he's saying, you're not ignorant, you're not in darkness. For that day, for that day to be a surprise, uh, surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. He's not talking about physical sleep. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, uh, the helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath. Amen. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are doing. You see how he, the return of Christ is embedded into the very way that we encourage one another. So if this is true, if this doctrine is true that Jesus is going to return, then why is this not necessary for our faith? Why don't we make this part of our regular conversation? Why don't we celebrate and love this doctrine more? Why don't we teach it more and talk about it more and encourage each other more? Why isn't the return of Christ that big of a deal anymore? I grew up, and, and, and I know there's errors to this as well, but I grew up where the return of Christ was preached almost every Sunday. I think that's important not to do every Sunday, but to keep this as a central focus of our hope that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Let's not get bogged down in the details, but he's coming. And he's coming to rescue us. And the only reason that, I came up with two reasons why this doctrine might not be that important to us. And the first one is, and it's not, the, uh, the second one is where I really think it is. But the first one is, maybe you just haven't experienced the darkness. Maybe you're younger Maybe you have a relatively easy life that hasn't been marred by sickness and death. You, ha you haven't suffered those things yet, so you tend to get comfortable. But even us who have experienced those things, we live in the Western world with the Western church. We're comfortable in our faith. We're not persecuted. We can gather freely without harm. You go across the seas to where there's poverty and persecution, they long for the return of Christ. They long for the return of Christ. When I sit and talk with people in Canada who have extreme diseases or pain, as believers, they long 
for the return of Christ. So it's either you have not really experienced the darkness yet, or you have been spared that affliction to a significant degree in your life, or the other reason, which I think is the more likely reason, is that we've gotten used to the darkness. We've gotten used to the darkness. It's kind of like when you, on a bright sunny day, you come into a dark house that all the shades are closed, right? And you're struggling to see, and your eyes, though, what do they do? They begin to adjust. You begin to get comfortable in that darkness. You can see and move around. And I think that is what happens to us in, 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 Christian, in our church, in, in our lives, in our, in our, as we pursue God, we start to get comfortable with the darkness around us. When we're first saved, remember back when you first got saved, you probably should have been locked in a cage because you were trying to beat the Bible over everybody's head, right? Because the darkness offended you so much. Where's that zeal now? I used to hate it when, when older Christians would say to me, oh, you'll calm down when you get older. I don't want to calm down. In 30 years from now, when I'm still hopefully preaching from the same pulpit, I'm going to be preaching the same way, if not louder. I don't want to calm down. Hopefully I make it there. <laughs> Let's not get used to the darkness. Let's stay used to the light, as, as our elder Mark was saying. Be the light of the world. And I always say this, and I'm going to keep saying it. What does light attract? Bugs. Lots of bugs. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And so we're going to get hurt. We're going to get mud thrown on us. We're going to get persecuted. We're going to get all these different things, but let's not get used to it because it's easier. Let's continue to shine brighter and brighter. Listen, this is the problem in the Western church is that we have relegated he is coming to a crazy person holding a sign on a busy street corner. We have relegated, we have boiled down he is coming to the mutterings of a madman. But the truth is right here in Scripture, church, he is coming back to get his people. He is coming back to judge the wicked and to vindicate the righteous, to rescue those who are inflicted, who are oppressed, to protect and to persevere and to establish a kingdom where we will dwell forever and ever and ever in his presence. He is really coming, church. He is coming. And you should ask the question as I close, are you ready? Are you ready? Not just am I ready if he comes back tomorrow, right? This is how I was taught. This is why I had so much fear because at any moment, it's going to come and gone. But what did we just say? We're children of the light. This shouldn't surprise us like a thief in the night. This is, gives us hope. So not just that you're ready because you, you, you might, he might come tomorrow, so you want to be, be caught you know, on your knees praying or something like that. That's how it's commonly taught, but it's, it, it's saying like, hey, you shouldn't play video games. You shouldn't go on family vacations. You shouldn't be doing all these different things because Jesus might come back tomorrow. He might come back tomorrow. That's wrong. That's a wrong way to teach that. It's the complete way, wrong way. Be ready for his return means not that you're on your tippy toes because he might appear tomorrow. It means that you're living your life now in light of the reality that he is coming in the way that we talked about last week. That you're loving big. That you're living quietly. And that you are laboring hard. And all of those things will begin to build a godly reputation in your life that will glorify his name. Meaning his return is impacting the decisions that you are making. The way that you handle your relationships with people and your finances. The way that you care for others and invest in people. Even the way that you are in your secular job. Are you ready? And what I can tell you for certain here, if you are watching online or you're here in person and you don't know Jesus yet, you're not ready. You are not ready. Because his second coming, he is not coming like his first coming. 
When Jesus came the first time, he came arms open saying, I know who you are. You are rebellious, sinful people. You have not loved God or neighbor as you're supposed to. And then they even rejected Jesus and murdered him. But what did he say even in that process? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He came arms open. He says, you are sinners, but I love you anyways, and I have come to save you. And all you have to do is come to me, and I will turn no one away. That's how Jesus came the first time. All who believe in him today have that same truth. You will be uh, rescued. You will be reconciled to God. But when he comes again, when he finally comes to hold everyone accountable for their sins, to correct every wrong, if your sins have not been atoned for by Christ, then you are still standing responsible for your sins. You will answer for them all. Believe on Christ now while you can. Look to Jesus who is coming soon. It's drawing nigh. Uh, He may tarry. He may not. He can come and you want to make sure that you are found among the saints. But you who are here who are Christians, I want to encourage you to live now in light of the future. And that means that you should have a sense of urgency in your life. As Anthea was praying in our time of prayer this morning, that this would give us a time of urgency, a sense of urgency, that we're not wasting our days, our relationships, that we're not wasting our employment, but we have this urgency that makes the most of those things, that makes the most of what we're doing. Jesus is coming back. That doesn't mean that you don't get to play ball with your kids or, uh, you know, have a, a video game session or go on family vacations or, or some people take it to the stream. I can't go to work. Jesus is coming back, so that means you do all those things, all the things that God has prepared for you beforehand for us to do, like the laundry or mowing the lawn or changing diapers. Husbands, you can't get out of that. Just, oh, Jesus is coming back. I can't mow the lawn. Sorry. I'd be the first one to use that excuse if I could, okay? But, but we're to do all these things, to do the job that we think is boring or unsatisfying. We are to forgive our neighbors and all these things that God has put before us, we are to do. And we are to do them in light of Christ's second coming. And that puts an urgency into what we do. And that should turn us into a a type of evangelist. Doesn't mean that you're running around all the time sharing everything, but are you praying for your neighbors? Are you praying for your lost relatives or, or, or friends? Not just throwing the Bible at them all the time, but are you actually praying for the Bible to stick? For the Word of God to make them alive? Are you laboring in prayer for the lost? That's the type of evangelist we need. We don't just need people standing on the corner screaming at people. We need a people on their knees praying that God would do what he can only do, and that is open the eyes of the unbelievers. Amen? We can't do that. We are the instrument he uses, but yet we can also be sometimes a bad tool. (laughs) We want to pray that God uses us even in spite of the fact that I'm grabbing a Robertson, but that's a Phillips, and I'm going to shove in there anyways, and I might make a mess of it, but God will bring the salvation. Be praying for the people. That was a weird analogy. I don't even know where that came from. But God is the one who opens the eyes of your neighbor, your son, your daughter, your friends, your brother, your sister. He might use you. He might not. But are you praying for them? Do you have a sense of urgency for their soul? Are you moved to labor in prayer before the King of kings and Lord of lords? That my sister, my brother, my son, my daughter, my niece, my nephew, my neighbor would come to know Jesus. Does it give you that urgency? Jesus is coming, church. It's not just a man holding a sign on the street. It's true. 
He is coming. And that pain, that sorrow, that affliction that you feel, that hurt, that worry, the destruction that is going around us, the wars and the rumors of wars and, and the, all the uprest in our lives, the corruptions in our government, the corruption in your own families, will all be corrected. All the pain you feel, although it's horrible now, will be yet momentary, will be a light momentary affliction and the light of the glorious glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, I praise you, Lord, and I thank you that we have this truth, that we have this understanding that you are coming, and you're coming not as the gentle lamb, but as the ruling, the ruling king. We need you as Psalms 2 points to the anointed one, the holy God, who the nations will rage against, but you sit on your throne and you laugh. The most terrifying laugh if you are not on the right side. You are a sovereign, mighty, ruling king. And we need that. When you come and you correct all the evil that we have done and you correct all the evil that was done towards us, O oh Lord. Father, may this be our hope that those of us who have experienced the death of loved ones, Lord, that we would look to this, that we would look to your return when we will see uh, you for who you are and we will be reunited with you and with our family and our Christian family, oh Lord. What a glorious day that will be. Father, keep this picture in our mind as we sing and Lord, as we go back into all the contexts of which we come from, maybe we've been fighting as a family, maybe we've had some uprest in our lives, Lord, may this Come as a blanket of peace to us. Would you give a sense of urgency to bring reconciliation into our lives, O oh Lord, and healing and peace. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's praise and worship together.